Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, welcome to back to the show, and we welcome Sophia, our first guest. We've never had a guest. Before. We've never had a guest before. Now we're it's we're getting exciting. Like, I feel like we're in the big leagues. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and we got a big league guest, Sophia Ikura. You are in Toronto. I am, and you work at the intersection of public health and social welfare, and run a kind of is it fair to call it like a think tanky kind of think lab where you're studying this stuff. It's more, yeah, it's, it's not, it's less think tank and more lab. Like it's a lot of doing, um, lots of thinking, but a lot of doing less writing. Um, and, and the idea is just, there's, we're working in spaces where we don't have a lot of good solutions. So we have to kind of invent them as we're going along. Um, and it is a, it's sort of an experiment trying to think, rethink how we do public policy, uh, using a lot of different tools and using the perspectives of many different disciplines that you don't necessarily bring into the policy process regularly. So uh, yeah, I would say it's more doing than writing, um, but it's everything else that you described. It's right at the intersection of sort of social welfare uh, and public policy and healthcare. So Chris and I have been talking in the last few episodes a little bit about just life in a pandemic and how it, it you know, it, it, part of the base camp community is about making maps together, seeking meaning together, about finding new paths, mm-hmm. mapping a new world and doing it, realizing we don't know all the answers, right? And, and we're doing this in a provisional kind of way together. I'm wondering, given what you're doing, what sort of, what maps have you seen that have been drawn wrongly in the pandemic? And, and, and what kind of new questions about meaning and purpose are coming to your to the foreground for you? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I think that there's a lot of assumptions that we are expected to kind of accept whole, like whole hog. There's some actually amazing new maps that I love about uh, that like about the flattening of the curve and the story that that tells us about ourselves, about the way that we work and the fact that flattening the curve has been a really big social experiment. Um, everybody has to play their part and we have this social contract with each other where we are going to, um, we're going to lean into the effort of trying to reduce the number of people that get sick by dramatically changing our behaviors. And it's not something that I would have guessed everybody would be willing to do. Like when we talk about our conversations around the environment, um, even around the economy and equity, like it, most people don't lean into those problems. And so it's been really exciting to see um, how quickly we changed our behaviors and to try and figure out whether or not. Why do you think that not. is? Just sort of interrupted up to there. But yeah, it's a great because question. There are obvious analogies, right? Right. I mean, I think that there's going to be a little micro, uh, a micro boom uh, you know, maybe in, in a variety of movements mm-hmm. around, you know, other curves that need to be flattened now right. that we've That's proven right. to ourselves that we, we totally right. can. That's and right. that, you know, the mobilization of, of kind of social collective effort um, is totally one of the big drivers of change that, you know, deserves to be recognized right up there alongside technology and, you know, all these other narratives we have about what drives change and progress. And, and now we have this concrete um evidence of how how we can all 
you know, transform the world if we all kind of have the same intent mm-hmm. in our heads and bring it into our lives. But, but I suppose, you know, then, then one starts to wonder how applicable is this learning experience to sort of other, 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 other problems. And, and, and what was yeah. it about, about this that, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question. I think part of it is that there, like, I, I mean, the cynic in me says there was a lot of unknowns and people were afraid. Like, they didn't necessarily know what it meant for themselves. They didn't know what it meant for the people around them. And so uh, you had some some clear authorities on the matter basically saying, this is the way we need to lean into this problem. And there was, like, there were actually, at the very beginning of this crisis, there wasn't a lot of questioning about whether or not we locked down, whether or not we closed, at least in many countries. Like, in Canada, that certainly wasn't the case. People were, you're going to stay home. And everybody said, okay, we're going to stay home. Um, you're an agreeable so, people, the Canadians. <laughs> I mean, not always, right? So it's kind of interesting that that... Uh, I agree with Sophia. We're not always agreeable. We're not all... <laughs> we, we will apologize, though, after we disagree. Yeah, um, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go yeah, 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 please. We could apologize. That'd be great. I feel um, so American right now. <laughs> Shh. Everybody apologize, shut up. <laughs> you interrupted my apology. No, so I mean, I think that there's... Um, I think there's a little bit of fear, but I think what's more interesting is what we tell ourselves about what happened here afterwards, right? Like we, I I keep wondering whether or not there's an opportunity to redraw our maps about who we are as a society. Are we a society that acts collectively or are we a society that pushes forward in the interest of the individual, I and mine more, more consistently over what everybody needs more, more consistently across the board. And so I think that that's a more interesting question to ask. I was talking to a behavioral um, psychologist who was telling me, or he's a behavioral economics guy, and he was telling me that, you know, if you can change behavior, um, that's the that's the biggest hurdle. Uh, because if you change behavior long enough and consistently enough, people don't like the dissonance that it creates between my mental model about who I am as a person and my behavioral change and as a consequence, they will sort of realign their mental models and their frameworks about who they are. So if we've changed our behaviors for long enough and we've behaved in a very social way on a common problem for long enough, is there an opportunity for us to uh, reimagine who we are as a society? Um, is there an opportunity for us to say, like, we're, we're not going to accept this idea that there's a basic level, level of human misery that we're going to accept as a given? Like the, the conversation around universal basic income is a really interesting one. We've been having that in Canada for some time. And uh, generally speaking, some very smart people were written off as being sort of too earnest or too naive. Or, um, and all of a sudden, we're having a very real conversation about universal basic income because governments are doing it and people are benefiting from it. Um, and there's a, an opportunity to rewrite the narrative around that as being completely out of reach. Um, as something that actually we can we can accomplish and could be useful. So I, I think it's the stories that we tell ourselves about as we're coming out of this that I think are going to be really interesting. I'm curious. One of the things I'm noticing is that, I mean, I was astounded that the United States is 4% of the world's population and we have 30% of the deaths, which is astounding to me. I mean, and but I, I think that what's happening in this country in a lot of conversations I'm following is, there's obviously a kind of concern about our healthcare system, but it just gets politicized again. It, it's either, mm-hmm. see, this is why we need to go to a, a socialized medicine 
socialized medicine kind of model. Or it's a, it's see, this is why we have our death rates are so much lower than Italy and other places, and that's why we thank God we have this American system. And I wonder like how you how we make some new maps, get some new models, think through some so what this is exposed about us without the tribal po- political stuff because the tribal political stuff just it kicks in and everybody just they're kind of uh you know you you kind of get into the reptilian brain fight or flight kind of thing and it seems like there's no i mean are there a way are, are you seeing conversations around what the pandemic has has shown about healthcare that are, are that aren't characterized by that kind of tribalism um i mean i think what's interesting is how we have shifted the like in Ontario in particular, we've sort of elected a premier that's a little more on the populist end of things. Who, uh, you know, a short six months ago, w- like we could not have imagined that he would ter- have turned to the public health experts and asked them opinion, their opinion about what we should be doing in this instance. Um, and he's done a phenomenal job, actually, bringing in the experts, listening the public, the public servants, and the and the public sector around. Um, how to proceed. He's been cautious. He's also, also political. He's listening to people. Like there's a lot of things that are happening that I say, I would say would have been really, really sort of unexpected from, from the premier that we have in Ontario right now. Um, and I think the opportunity is, you know, I I listened to your podcast the other day about how many different mental models can we tolerate in the same space or how many can we expect should be allowed to operate at the same time? Um, and I think the answer to the question you guys arrived at this is it's like as many as you care to connect through some points of intersection, right? Like what are the things that bring all those perspectives together? And one of the things that I find interesting about politicians on both sides of the spectrum is that if you go back to their origin story, usually it begins with an interest in society and a civic duty. And then the way that they describe the, what it should look like always looks a little bit different. But if we can tap back into like, you know, those more altruistic and intrinsic motivations for like, participating in, uh, in, the, in public service, even if it's on the political side or if it's on the civil service side, um, that there's an opportunity to get to something that we share in common. If we, if we listen to people about what they hope for and what their aspirations are, um, there's maybe an opportunity to find a path forward, a narrative that sort of comes up the middle. So I don't, I haven't seen it yet, uh, Scott, but I, I, I do think it may be, it may be out there. And the, and the answer might be, we need to ask people more consistently, like, what are they hoping for? What do they need? There was a poll that was done here in, in Canada, actually, asking Canadians about, um, like, on one hand, how quickly do they want to reopen the economy? And it was fast. And the other, like, what level of community spread would they tolerate? And their tolerance for that was actually really low. So there's clearly <laughs> a dialogue there that needs to happen about how do we get to something that everybody can kind of accept. And the hard um, choices that need to be made. And Yeah, yeah. And then I, I don't think there's been a lot of conversation about the fallout of this, but it's going to be significant. Like the economic impact of the lockdown um, is going to be really dramatic. And I think it's going to affect communities very disproportionately. Um, and it's going to take decades actually to come out of the long-term implications of this for, for certain groups. So we need to have more of these conversations, I think. Okay. Can I, can I chime in on a couple of things there? Mm-hmm. One, uh, the economic impact. So just a couple of days ago, I was on 
on the phone with one of uh, Europe's ambassadors to um, to to China. Um, just you know, it, it's actually been a great time for um, for the the Foreign Service. You talk about sort of public goods that are kind of underappreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, countries that have had that have good teams on the ground in China. I mean, it's been so valuable because they've really been helping to you know source medical equipment that that their countries need and and you know they've got the they've got the understanding of how things work on the ground to to move things along. And anyway, we we were talking about sort of the economic fallout for this and and uh, one of the things he said to me that stuck with me is that like the bill for all this hasn't really come due yet. Yes. You know, we're just oh, printing man. money. I'm terrified. But, <laughs> but yeah, so you know, he said like one, you know, across a lot of the developed world, you know, we're staring we're staring at maybe 35% or more youth unemployment for the next little while. It's going to be a really hard time for youth to find work. And that's going to create all sorts of like intergenerational tensions that we haven't yet really had to confront. And then, then his other point was just looking at the state of public finances. He said like, yeah, like if this happens again in the next five years, we probably won't be able to choose to shut down the economy for a period of time. Um, because we just, you know, it, it will just hurt public finances too much to be able to sort of bail out the whole of society on this scale again. So, so financially, we're all going to be really, really fragile for like, not just until there's a, a vaccine, but, you know, for several years to kind of just recover from the cost of mm-hmm. the actions that we're, we're taking. Uh, but, but, I, but before we move too far from it, I, I just wanted to, I, I love this word, Sophia, that you used intersection and, and how this, you know, this, um, this event is kind of an opportunity to connect worldviews and and political perspectives and 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 to connect in a very concrete way the I and the we. I'm 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 actually a bit cynical about you know whether we will all come out of this being nicer to one another, sort of holding on to that kumbaya, um, because depending where you looked, we never really had it. I mean, the kind of the compassion that people expressed mm. was wonderful, but it did hit against some pretty familiar limits. Uh, within countries and certainly between countries. So, you know, the, the narrative that we've been really nice to each other through this is true, but, but the we is not, a, is not everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I, I do have more faith that, you know, we might all come out of this with uh, a much stronger sense of our own fragility um, and how, how, you know, your well-being, uh, Sophia and mine, are, are connected and and not just in a sort of vague way, but in this kind of concrete way, where there are some things that I I can only have like you know health if other people are also resilient. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, it, it'd be interesting to see how deeply that sense of connection goes. I mean, you do see it now in businesses, or you know, like if you're Airbnb, you're living the reality that you know you're only as strong as your customers, right? Um, in many ways, your business model is dependent upon a lot of public infrastructure that you take for granted. And so, you know, yeah. if you're looking for relief from your government, their capacity to provide that relief is dependent on, you know, if everyone's been paying their taxes or how how cleverly they've been avoiding them. So, <laughs> yeah, this is this is interesting you say that because in the United States, a lot of the states that, are, that want to open up are early. And most of the, I don't think anybody like a lot of the states that have opened up have opened up without following the guidelines. The curve is right. not flat. It's not the, the cases haven't gone down for two weeks. Right. 
but you have states, mostly red states in the in the South and the Southwest, um, where the states don't have income tax, right? And so they can't afford to stay, to stay shut down because there's no revenue coming. In. Whereas, like Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, they all have an income tax. So if people are are staying home and working, right? If teachers are doing online classes, if people are ma- doing various things in, in finance or other other sectors, customer service, whatever, and making money and getting paychecks, there's still revenue going in the state coffers. It's diminished, but they're not just dependent on sales tax. And so this is one of these things that it's just a very concrete example where right, right. The, pressure to, the pressure to just keep things open because, hey, we've decided not to have income tax is, is really kind of threatening public health. So, so do you, I mean, let's, well, I think, it, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just, uh, no, I mean, I think what, <laughs> what I was going to say was, I think that that's probably a matter of never having a real conversation about the trade-offs that, that were happening when you, when you don't have income tax, the assumption was that you would always have some ability to be able to pay for your basic needs. Like people, if people are sort of buying into that model, that's the assumption that they're making. And there's not a lot of cushion in that kind of model. Right. Um, and there's a hubris that comes along with the way that we were living before that uh, I think to some degree has been dispelled. Like, you're right, Chris, it has perfectly laid bare to us the nature of our fragility as a society, uh, the degree of complexity and like it, um, sort of the layering and layering of complex systems on top of each other and the, the, rely, the reliance on each other. Um, and when one of those piece of go, pieces goes, everything starts to fall apart. And I am you sort of, at some point we should talk about the reason why I think the kinds of conversations that you're trying to have at base camp, um, offer, I think maybe an early prototype for the way that we can begin to think about this kind of complexity that we've laid bare with Corona and with the pandemic response and, and what it's going to take actually to lean into the problems that are coming for us. Like that complexity has always been there, but I think we've been, um, we've been either willfully ignoring it or we've been largely able to sort of remain ignorant of how fragile that system is. And it took something at the scale of the pandemic to force us to have a conversation about what do we need to do differently? That's, <laughs> yeah, it is. We're, we're such an interesting species, aren't we? Like the, the, the complexity of our problems um, is only increasing, but it seems like the, uh, uh, it seems like our solutions are only getting simpler and simpler, right? So the technology right. will solve all our problems. I mean, it's all, I, yes. the, the complexity of our solutions has like declined to zero. Um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, like yeah. we really like a reductionist view of it because it allows us to sort of ignore the, the difficult and messy parts of the problem. Um, and it's really soothing. And I actually think that that has to do with how much information is constantly coming at us. Like how much information in a newspaper can you have enough detailed knowledge about to be able to accept anything other than a very sort of basic platitude about it needs to be this thing or it has to be that thing. Like it's a binary in many instances. Um, and that's not the world that we live in. We rely on complexity in a very big way. This is what's killing things in the United States, right? Now. I think if you look mm-hmm. at cable news, it's just the dialogue is if you're it's on one cable channel on the left, it's anybody that wants to reopen the economy. It just wants to kill people and that, that has no compassion. And then, uh, you know, on the right, if you go to Fox, it's, well, anybody that, uh, that, that wants to sort of, you know, g- g- be cautious, doesn't love America and doesn't have any compassion for all the people that are poor and suffering and are out of work. And so 
it's so, so little th- of things are, are framed in a way that actually give us information because which is what we need right if we're going to make there needs to be some kind of consent of the governed where we we, we, we realize okay we probably aren't going to get a vaccine in the near future we're probably going to have to figure out how to live with this pandemic live with the virus and, and future outbreaks and we're going to have to make decisions about how we share risks together and how we care for one another in the risk sharing and what, what we, I mean, I just heard this one story that NPR had where this guy, one of the early guys in the, in the nursing industry, as soon as this hit, he just bought all these trailers, right? He went into his personal savings. I mean, he was a wealthy guy, but went into his, but all these trailers, put the nurses in, in the trailers, increased their pay and just kept them there. So there's no, you know, so they don't have, they don't go home. They don't, they're, they're fed. They, the restaurants bring them meals and stuff. They've had zero deaths in that nursing home. Mm-hmm. Zero. Because he he just did something urgent and used Marshall's resources. I'm like, wow, that's remarkable, right? But it seems to me that the kind of like strategic thinking and and the kind of information based thinking and appreciation of complexity that that one you know nursing home owner was able to marshal. It it just seems like our our media discussion kills our capacity to have those kinds of conversations and come up with those kinds of strategies because we're just blaming everybody. You know, as if as if it's not the virus that's the problem. It's we're the problem. You know, it's it's just it's it's a debilitating kind of state of discourse. It's actually really interesting. You said a couple of things in there that I really liked, which is like, how do we actually think about how and when we will share the risks, and with whom will we share those risks? And I think that there's like one of the things that's really really debilitating to our ability to do that well is that we don't name those risks specifically, right? We actually don't talk about. We talk about deaths in big numbers. We don't talk about like like actually the specifics of who's dying or their stories or what we have come to accept um, are going to be disproportionate impacts on certain communities, for example. Like there's articles in the New York Times and the Washington Post about like, you know, the disproportionate impact of corona in the U.S. on black and Hispanic communities. But it seems to be like a generally accepted truth about what happens in the U.S. People state it and then they move on. We don't really linger there. And um, and I think it's probably because we've come to assume that you can't change that. And I think if we unpack that question a little bit, we can start to have a conversation about how we might really name the specific components of the parts of risk that we're going to take on and share and spread and um, and break it down in a way that makes it that puts it within reach. Like we've been spending some time at the lab thinking through it, reopening. And one of the, one of the core elements of reopening is sentinel testing, which is essentially you go in and do routinized testing of asymptomatic people. Um, and typically sentinel testing happens by sectors because employers can, can compel employees to, uh, to be tested in order to be able to remain in the workforce. Um, right, this is called sentinel testing. It's called sentinel testing. It's a public health thing, right? And it's and typically what you would do is you would say, okay, where are our industries that are most at risk and how do we want to do sentinel testing in order to be able to ensure that we can remain open? You want to do some hotspotting. It allows you to identify where there's an outbreak earlier and do quarantine. Those are all really important tenets of, of, of sort of moving out of lockdown. One of the things that tweaked for me was here in Toronto, we had 10... Um, 10 deaths of airport limousine drivers in the last two months. Like 10 deaths is actually a lot for a city like Toronto. Um, and what it told me was that like, it's, it's sort of right in that, that sort of spot of people who are more vulnerable because they can't stay home. They must work. Uh, the kind of work that they're doing, the lack of access that they might have to protective equipment, 
And then I was like, where do those people live? And you can imagine that when you look at maps, we know that many of these characteristics of like, you know, precarious employment or gig employment or low income wage jobs, people who travel specifically using transit, um, people who may live in more congregate living spaces or multi-generational units where there's density, like those are all really significant risk factors for the spread of corona. And so there's a case to be made for not just doing sort of sector-based sentinel testing, but neighborhood-based sentinel testing. But for a whole bunch of reasons, that's going to be risky, right? Like there's a fear of stigma. There's a, I'm going in and taking something out, but I'm not giving anything back. I'm going to take your data, but I'm not going to offer you anything in exchange. There's, there's in Canada, there's certainly communities that have experienced that feeling of giving over my data and then having it be used in really negative ways. And that's true in the Indigenous community. Um, and, and so I think that there's a whole bunch of reasons why we should be thinking about neighborhood-based strategies, but a lot of risk for those folks, unless we do it well. And when I was thinking about the team that we would put together to try and understand how could you make Sentinel testing feel safe and actually have utility for those, those residents, it would be some combination of our epidemiologists who can think about numbers, you know, think about frequency, um, and, and, you know, how many tests per you know, 100,000 or 10,000 people in a particular neighborhood. You'd want sociologists and anthropologists who are very good at understanding the stories of people and how they influence their choices around whether or not they will participate. Like, what are the historical experiences of those communities that you would need to understand in order to be able to put um, a good plan forward? And then you'd really want to be able to activate that community so they can ask you for what they need in order to make that tolerable. What are the, what are the neighborhood associations going to say to you about like, yes, you can come in, but in exchange for that, when there's an outbreak, what we want from you is space. Like how could we spread out or how could we safely quarantine whole families or whole floors of this sort of dense urban building? So I think, you know, hmm. to your point, you can understand the problem of sentinel testing from a mathematical perspective. That's the epidemiology piece. Public health would essentially say, well, we're just going to we're just going to mandate it. But if you ignore all of the aspects of the experience of that from the residents and the citizens perspective, you're not going to be successful. And so I think we really need like new conversations, new tools and very different approaches um, and and that's the kind of, I think, posture that we need to bring to many of these complex problems. Like a sense is, of humility. Is, is that what's drawn you to the base camp kind of community? Like sure. the, the, that, seeking that in, in your own discipline and, and, and connecting with other people who are seeking the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, my first experience with base camp was a full day session where I was like, oh, not really anybody in the healthcare system compared to some of the folks sitting at our table. Um, and like just listening to these giants talk about some of the major challenges in healthcare with a real humility of like, I actually, I know a lot. I'm an expert in a lot of things, but I don't know enough to be able to do this yeah. on my own. And I think that that was a general attitude across the room, like just like these giants and then other people who are in the earlier stages of this journey of trying to figure out how we innovate a path forward. Uh, lots of curious people willing to have lots of curious conversations. And it's, it's incredibly energizing to have many different perspectives being lent to the same problem, looking at it from many different angles. Like you can only know the part that you are an expert in. Um, 
And even then, you need to have other people questioning some of your basic assumptions if it's going to go if it's going to go anywhere. So that is when I that that's what gets me really excited about Basecamp, actually. Well, I appreciate your excitement, and Chris, Sophia, thanks for this enlightening conversation. And I hope that uh, the Basecamp tribe increases. Me too. Oh my God, we had an interview. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> thanks so much, Sophia. <laughs> thanks, Sophia. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.